0: The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Morning, church. How are we? You look good. Most of you. Got that extra hour of sleep? Unless you're a parent. If you don't have kids, you don't realize that when the time changes, no one tells our children. And so they get up at the normal time, which happens to be an hour earlier than it should be. And we don't get our extra hour of sleep. Uh, If you're new here, my name's Brian. I'm really thankful that you're with us. Um, If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to turn somewhere different, but you go to Colossians 3 because that's where we're going to end up. Um, I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 7. Um, Yeah, I'm glad you're here. If you're new around here and I've met a few of you this morning, I just want to let you know uh, we got a little thing we call open house that'll happen after today's gathering. Uh, You can go out these doors and take a right. In the back classroom over there, we'll have lemonade and cookies, and it's just an opportunity to get to know some of our team. Uh, I'll be there. Some of our elders and staff will be there as well. We'd love to just meet you and uh, tell you a little bit more about our congregation or answer questions you have as you're looking to get uh, perhaps involved here. Um, we're a pretty simple church. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a ton of programming, but uh, we, we call ourselves a family, and I hope that you feel that, that you feel like you belong uh, to this expression of the body of Christ, the family that we call Steadfast Church. Um, we've been in a series, I think we're in week eight now, uh, just trying to make sense of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Um, Everybody I talk to says, you know, culture seems to be changing so rapidly and it's hard to know how to adjust and, and how to, how to hold on to, you know, the things that we believe while everything around us seems to be just going bananas. And so we're trying to learn, you know, this cultural moment we're in, but also how we can best represent Jesus and his kingdom in this cultural moment. I hope that the series has been an encouragement and a challenge to you, um, Uh, If not, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) It's about the best I know how to do. Um, But I hope that it has been. And uh, if you've missed any of the weeks of this series, there are, of course, online uh, podcasts, uh, YouTube, Facebook, all that kind of thing you can catch up. Um, Today, I'd like to dive into what I think is is one of the most visible issues in our current cultural moment. Uh, And yet, out of the probably two dozen or so uh, books that I read in preparation for this series... It was mentioned very little, which I found curious. And uh, the issue we wanna talk about today is how to be a people of peace uh, in a world of protest, or maybe a better way of putting it, as uh, a world of outrage. We live in a world of outrage. We seem to be living in increasingly precarious and volatile times, uncertain times, Uh, whether it's politics in our country or the economy or issues of justice or now multiple high-profile wars that are happening in the world around us, um, we, we are in a culture that seems to be marked by division and fear and mistrust and suspicion and stress and anger. Like everyone is angry and they really want you to know. There's there's no grace for one another. There's no patience for one another. We would just assume cancel you as to have a conversation with you, to understand your perspective and opinion. Uh, One author that I came across this week put it this way. He said, Outrage is an acceptable and addictive drug of our society, which convinces us that we are smart, that we are right, And that we have the necessary ideas to fix everything that we should be in charge. And he said, all that does is fuel our pride. So the question I really want to kind of get our arms around this morning is like, what should our response be to the culture that we live in as followers of Jesus? As we see the the outrage and the protest and the anger and the frustration of the world around us, how should we respond to that? Okay, I think we know the answer, but I want to show you the answer from our sacred literature. So uh, let me pray, and then we're gonna, I'm going to jump into Matthew 7 uh, as a launching point to get us to Colossians chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, what a gift it is to be together as the people of God. Uh, we do not take this lightly. I know that it's easy to get into routines of just getting up and going to church, uh, and yet there is biblically no such thing as getting up and going to church. We are the church. We are your church. Sacred people, gather together for your glory and for the good of one another in our city. And I pray that every day, every Sunday, that we get up and we get ready to come into this facility, uh, that it would be on our minds that this is a miracle. That you, by your Spirit, are building us into a dwelling place for your Spirit in a unique way. That we would be people who prioritize the gathering together of the saints because we want to honor and glorify you and we want to be part of this thing that you're building. I thank you so much for the brothers and sisters that are here this morning. And I pray Lord that as we open your word that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit would you f- fill me and empower me that I might rightly divide these words that your people might be edified that they might be blessed and benefited and challenged and encouraged by these words, and that you would be glorified. There is so much chaos in the world around us. We need you. We need your peace. We need your comfort. We need your assurance. And so, Lord, would you do that for us by your spirit and through your word this morning. We ask all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You guys ready to study the word? Amen. All right. I'm going to start in uh, Matthew 7. You can join me there if you want to, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read you a a few verses and we'll chat about them and then we'll get to Colossians. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Jesus says this, judge not that you not be judged for with the judgment you pronounce, it will be, you will be judged with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I know most of us have probably heard these words before from Jesus. About seven years ago, I preached from Matthew chapter seven and I went back to my old notes. I was looking through them and one of the things that I said in that Sermon was um, that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is like the life verse of Americans, right? Whether they're believers or not. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's, and it was almost at the time, this sort of like, hey, you, you are wrong to judge anyone for anyone, for anything. And honestly, I'm not sure that I believe that anymore. I believe what the Bible says, but I don't believe that Americans think that this is their life verse anymore. Because it seems that we live in a society that believes we can and should. Judge everyone who disagrees with us. Not just in the sense of forming opinions, right? There's, there's uh, you make judgments, right? We are called to have good judgment, which is to form opinions about things based on the evidence. That's one idea of judging. I think we live in a world that says we should pass judgment on other people, that we should actually condemn them for not believing as we believe, Respect has been replaced with outrage. We, if especially if you spend any time uh, online, you see harsh criticisms, accusations, and it seems that many people want to actually see harm come to people who think differently and believe differently and, and espouse different viewpoints than they do. Now, that might not be you. I would hope that most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, would say, Well, that doesn't describe me, but all of us are affected by this. Because it is an it is a, a sickness of our society that all of us hear or see. We have family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors who, who espouse these sorts of principles and it makes it hard it makes it hard to live here. So we might be asking the question, like, how did we get here? Because it it seems like it used to be where you could live across the street from someone who was of the other political persuasion and thought differently about things like religion and politics and society and economy, and you could still hang out and have conversations about your lawn, you know, and things like that, but now they're the enemy. And you want nothing to do with those people. How did we get here? Well, I want to show you just briefly, I'm going to it, it describe without going to the text, because we've been in it for so long. Um, the roots of rage. And you can just write that down if you're a note taker. as our first point, the roots of rage. Now we've spent a lot of time, if you've been in this series, we've spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis. So I'm not gonna take us there this morning, but I do wanna remind you of some of the things that we've seen in the book of Genesis so far. We see that God created humanity, man and woman, mankind in his own image and for his own glory, right? in his own image and for his own glory, which means that he created humanity with equal worth, value and dignity because all of mankind is created as image bearers of God. And he made us for a relationship both with himself and with one another. In fact, um, one scholar points out that in Genesis chapter two, we find one of the the great theological weirdnesses of the Bible, which is that before sin enters the world, God says it's not good for man to be alone in the garden. Think about that for a second. Everything is right and good and perfect. And as God has created all of his creation, he's calling it good. And then he sees one human being in the garden by himself. And God goes, that's not good. Like, Even walking in perfect relationship with God in his creation was in some ways not enough to fulfill a human being. God had to create another human being in order to walk with him. We needed a companion. We needed friends. We needed human relationship. And so we we see that beauty, right? That we're made for relationship with God and one another. But then Satan enters the picture and he tempts the first humans to both distrust God's provision for them Remember, God said, you can eat of any fruit, anything you want to, just don't touch this one tree. And the enemy says, well, God must not love you if he's keeping that one tree from you. So they distrust God's gracious provision. They also disrespect God's gracious authority. And in the rebellion of humankind, what we see is a fracturing of relationships, Our relationship with God is severed. We hide from him. Our relationship with one another is severed because we clothe ourselves and hide from one another. And and when you dig into the Genesis account, what you see is with Adam and Eve, um, fear and self-focus and blame and suspicion. And those things tend to mark every human relationship from that point forward. That all of us, are sort of born with this inherent fear of being known and focus on ourselves and uh, suspicion about other people and their motives, and that makes human relationships really difficult, doesn't it? And not only do we suffer an identity crisis, we no longer know who we are because we rebelled against the authority of God who gave us an identity, but we fail to relate to other human beings as equal image bearers of God. It's it's just a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter four where we see the first murder. Cain and Abel, brother, killing brother because he's jealous. It's wild to see that progression in such a quick, uh, in such a short amount of time, right? That one image bearer of God actually snuffs out the life of another image bearer of God only because he's jealous of him. Now, Fast forward to our current cultural moment. Because we don't know who we are, we cling to other things for a sense of identity and worth. We cling to things like um, gender and ethnicity or gender, uh, uh, sexual orientation, um, ethnicity or race, political party. There's now such a thing called identity politics, right? So. Um, people who are all sort of in a, in a category together will align themselves with a political party regardless of whether they actually believe all the tenets of that political party or not, because everybody who looks like me votes for those people, so I vote for those people too. So we don't know who we are, and we, identif- we, we cling to things for identity, but, but we also, because, and I've said this before in the, in the series, which is why I'm trying to get here, get through this quickly, because we believe that we have the right to define ourselves for ourselves, and and defining ourselves is an act of self-justification, we need constant affirmation. We need people from outside to agree with us. And so what what happens is we take take beliefs and opinions and positions and desires, and we essentialize them. They become uh, essential to who we are. They become enmeshed with our actual personal identity or our sense of ourselves. We end up moralizing the, the, the positions that we hold and therefore we must demonize the positions that are against the positions that we hold. Does that track in? You understand what I'm saying? So because we moralize everything because it's essential to who we are in our identity, then anyone who thinks differently than me, they're the, the, they're the enemy, we demonize them. And we become incredibly fragile people who cannot have conversation, because if you disagree with me, you are actually undermining my very identity. I saw this very clearly. I watched, it was about six months ago, I saw this video on YouTube, and you know you're going down a rabbit hole when you watch YouTube. Uh, it, was a, it was a video on feminism and women's issues, okay? And they had a panel of women, some conservatives, some progressive, some in the middle, and they were having an, a, a conversation about women's issues. And the panel it was about eight or nine women. It very quickly devolved because one woman would say something to the other, like, well, you don't understand my unique position because you're not an otherly abled trans queer black woman. So you can't identify with me. You can't understand me because you're a white woman. And it's like, what are we doing? We're, we're eating ourselves. We're, we're warring against ourselves. Even women who are on a panel to talk about women's issues can't agree with themselves because oh, we have all these other little nuances to our identity that make my unique position so vastly different than yours. You can't relate to me or understand me. So you're the enemy. I moralize myself. I demonize you, and we can't have conversation. Now, add to that already blazing inferno the fact that technology has shrunk the world. 24-hour quote-unquote news The internet and social media give us instant access to all global tragedies and injustices. And not only are we supposed to know about everything that's going on in every country in the world, it seems, but we're supposed to have a position about it. What do you think about blah, 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 blah? I didn't even know that was a country, man, you know? It's a weight that we as humanity are not meant to carry. We were never, I mean, I, I, this might be a whole other sermon and I might uh, do it in this series, but I, the, the, the idea of the constant stream of information that comes at us via technology, it puts a weight on humans that we were never meant to carry. It is crushing. And many people respond in anger. So, Most of us, when it comes to all these issues in the world, we have partial information, but we have full-blown emotional responses. (laughs) And anyone with a keyboard and an internet connection becomes a self-appointed moral police, and we start making comments. And usually, you know, they have found that angry moral comments actually get more retweets and more responses than just plain old, like, let's have a dialogue about this comments. In fact, there was a study done on Twitter X, I guess it's called now. And, and they, they saw that moral and emotional words used in a, in a tweet increased its retweeting by 20%. So if it was like, hey, here's what I think, let's have a conversation. It was like, nobody cares about that. But if it was like, these people are stupid. It's like, oh, let me retweet that one, right? And then what do we do? Responses, like emotional responses re- cause more reaction and we react to reactions and we escalate. And pretty soon, no one is listening, and everyone is yelling. And it pushes us all deeper and deeper and deeper into our own echo chambers. We, we, we like hearing the voices who agree with us. We don't have any margin for people who don't. So when it comes to our chosen news outlets, and that's why I use the, the, you know, there is good news out there. There's just not a lot of it because so much of our cable news in particular, and you know this, you know this, but you still watch it, folks. It reinforces the things you already believe. It's not actually news, it's social commentary. The podcasts we choose to listen to. Some of us have have, uh, family members or friends who we have cut out of our lives or they've cut us out of their lives because we disagree on, on particular issues. It's even been the reality in the last, probably 10 years or so in particular, that universities around our country will disinvite speakers because that speaker holds a contrary opinion to the majority of the body of the students. And it's not a safe place for us to have conversation because this person disagrees with us. What are we doing? Like I thought university was supposed to be the place where we actually bring differing ideas together and converse and learn how to dialogue, but now we're canceling people who don't think like we think. It's madness, folks. It's absolute madness. So we reduce human beings who are made in the image of God into faceless political positions or ideologies, and we are mad at culture without realizing that culture is actually the corporate expression of the human heart. So Jesus says to us here, do not judge, you hypocrites, (laughs) because you got some logs to take care of and you're more concerned about the specks in everybody else's eye than the logs in your own. Now, this wasn't where I wanted to go. So let's, uh, are you guys with me so far? Okay, let's go to Colossians chapter three and then I'll really get after you. Just kidding. Colossians chapter three. Um, so, so we saw there the, the root or the sort of um, yeah the root of rage right uh, Genesis and Matthew but now I want you to see the fruit of faith. Here's sort of my thesis, if you will. Okay, hearts that have been transformed by an experience of the grace of Jesus are supposed to be restrained from their judgment of other people. Now Colossae was a very pluralistic city. Um, Christianity was not popular there at all, as it is isn't most places. Um, and there, were, there was lots of cultural pressure in the city of Colossae to conform Christian doctrine to make it more palatable to the pluralistic society of Colossae, okay? And, and some people were doing that. They were trying to do that. They're, try, they're like, hey, uh, this is offensive to some people, so why don't we just change it? And we know, like, we like this, but let's... And, um, and so Paul writes a letter back to them. And here's what he's, here's what he's doing. The, the question people are asking Colossae is this. How do I live in a society that seems to despise what I love and love what I despise? I don't know if some of you can resonate with that. How do we live in a culture in a society that seems to be the days of the judges where we're calling what's right, wrong and calling what's wrong, right. And everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it seems to be this sort of cesspool of just everyone doing their own thing. And yet everybody says that what I believe is wrong. How do I do that? How do I live here? And so Paul's admonishment to the Christians in Colossae is this, if you're in Christ, If you've embraced the good news of Jesus with the empty hands of faith, then there are certain attitudes and behaviors that need to be put off. For example, if you look at verse eight in chapter three, but now you must put these all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So cut the cord on your cable news, folks. But then there are other things that must be put on. There are attitudes and behaviors that we must put on. But, but before Paul goes there, he reminds us of something. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 12 with me of Colossians chapter three. Look what he says. So He says, put off these certain attitudes and behaviors. Then he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes on to say, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But look what he did here first in chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let that sink in for a moment. Christian, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved by God himself? Like, do you actually believe that? Has the reality of of the truth of those three things sunk deeply into your soul, that you are chosen? In other words, you did not break down God's unwillingness to save you. He broke down your unwillingness to repent. He pursued you in love. He broke down all of your resistance. He broke down all of your strongholds. He broke down all of your reasoning, why Christianity is dumb and you shouldn't become a Christian. And he saved you. And for many of you, I I use this all the time. It's like a light switch, like a dimmer switch slowly over time, it's just become more brighter, more brighter, public school education. Um, It's become, no offense if you're in the public school system, you're doing a great job. This is just what you have to work with, okay? Over time, the reality of Christ and His gospel has become more clear to you. The lights are, have gotten brighter, and one day you realize you believe other people. It's more like a floodlight, and went from darkness to light in a hurry. Okay, but the reality is, the moment that you surrendered your life to Christ, the moment that you repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, it's because Jesus was pursuing you the entire time. You are chosen. You are. You are holy. This is one of those that it's easy for us to say and I don't know that many of us believe that God calls you holy in Christ. Because we know ourselves, right? We know our stupidity and our foolishness and our sin. We know um, our unbelief. (laughs) And, And to think that the God of the universe would call me holy is just wild. But but that's the reality, that God views us through the lens of the gospel, right? That he he sent Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to live a life that none of us could ever live. He was perfect and spotless and above reproach. He was sinless. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted. And yet, what did he do? He did not sin. He always honored his father. And that righteousness is credited to us. Mark just talked about it here uh, in our words of assurance. That Jesus took the 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 rage of god against sin and sinners on himself jesus bore the wrath of god in in my place For all of my stupidity and foolishness and sin and rebellion, he took it on himself and and he absorbed all of that wrath of God and he turned it into God's favor towards me so that when I come with the empty hands of faith and I repent of sin and I trust in what Jesus has done for me, that he forgives me of all my sin and he calls me holy and blameless and above reproach. He calls me spotless and pure and righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done for me. You're loved. You're loved by God, <laughs> by a holy and righteous God. Now, it's one thing to be justified, and I think so many of us understand and believe that we are forgiven of sin and we are you know, just in the sight of God, but we forget we've also been adopted. It's one thing to be justified. It's a whole other thing to be adopted, to have the right to be called the sons and daughters of God because of Christ. Christ to be welcomed into his family. Uh, Just a few verses for you to remind you. Um, Romans chapter five, you know, um, the love of God is is made manifest in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrates his love for us. Um, First John chapter four Where am I at here? Verse nine, 1 John chapter four, verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. Do you understand that you are loved by God in spite of, of your continued failures and flaws and hangups and fears and sins. Because God views you through the lens of Jesus and he delights in you, he smiles at you, he loves you. And if those things are true, and they are, if you've received the finished work of Jesus, if those things are true, then he says, now put on these things, put off this old life, put on these things as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here we go. You guys with me? Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hey chosen one, hey holy one, hey beloved one, here's some things to put on. Humility and meekness. Sorry, compassion and kindness is where he starts. Empathy, genuine concern for other people made in the image of God, whether they think like me or not. A willingness to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know how rehumanizing that is? When we stop looking at people as positions or, or you know, stances and we actually see them as people made in the image of God, yeah, we might disagree, but, but they bear God's image. If being a Christian makes you mean and angry and judgmental, I've got news for you. It's not Jesus who is shaping your character. Put on compassion and kindness, put on humility and meekness. (laughs) We can be so obnoxious and loud and foolish, can't we? And you know what? We have every right to be. We have every right to be as obnoxious as we want to be, but as Christians, we choose not to use that right. Uh, Paul in um, 1 Timothy 2 You know, the Ephesian culture was much like the Colossian one, it was a it was a mess, you know. And Paul's admonition to Timothy as as he's writing to him, who pastors the church in Ephesus, is not to protest the world, but it's to pray for the leaders of the of the country. He says, Pray, pray for your leaders so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Hmm. put on compassion and kindness, put on humility and meekness, put on patience and bearing with one another. Do you know how exhausting outrage culture is? (laughs) To constantly be reacting to everyone else's reactions and then they react to your reactions and you react to their reactions to your reactions? It's ridiculous, right? So, patience, bearing with, giving up the right to be right. And then he says to put on forgiveness. Forgiveness is the opposite of canceling someone because forgiveness seeks reconciliation. And he says here that the glue to all of this is love. Why is the glue love? Well, because all of these are actually expressions of love. Right? compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness. Those are all expressions of love. And, and Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, I don't have time to go there, but you know it because it's the wedding passage, right? Which isn't really about marriage at all. Um, but he talks about how like, okay, if I have all the spiritual gifts, if I can do all these things, if I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, then what am I, a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong? Is that not what outrage culture is? Is that not what most social media is? It's just noise. It's everyone yelling and no one listening. Now, I can feel some pushback from, from some of you who might go, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you." But Jesus was outraged, shouldn't we be? Didn't Jesus throw over some tables in the temple? Like, where, where, I wanna throw some tables. Like, why can't I be like Jesus and turn over the tables? Okay, was, did Jesus get outraged. Yes, he did. But I got two things for you. Number one, you ain't Jesus. (laughs) Number two, what was it that made Jesus outraged? Class? Was it the pagans? Was it, it was people claiming faith in God who weren't living like it. Ooh. There, anger's not the issue, okay? There there are things happening in the world around us every day that should make us righteously angry, okay? There is sin, there is injustice, there is oppression, there, there, there are religious Pharisees, right? It should make all of us righteously anger, but our response should always reflect the character of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God, namely the Sermon on the Mount, I told you at the beginning of the series, the Sermon on the Mount in so many ways is Jesus saying, this is what my, the culture of my kingdom looks like on the earth, okay? You wanna live counter to the culture? You wanna see culture transformed? Start living out the values of the Sermon on the Mount in this world and watch what happens. The problem is that's a slow burn and we want quick action. And so we actually use the ways of the world to protest the world rather than using the ways of the kingdom. And shame on us for doing it. One author this week put it this way. Gosh, I have so much more to go. This is gonna be a long one. Uh, Sorry, but not really. The way of outrage culture is the way of belligerence, the way of lacking in self-control, the way of slander and self-righteousness. It's the way of pride. But the way of Christ is the way of humility and charity of compassion and patience and long-suffering. It's the way of holiness. So that's the fruit of our faith, right? We saw the root of rage. We want to see, we saw here the the fruit of faith, but some of you might be asking, okay, this is great, but how do I even do this? Like, how do I do this? I want you to see in our last point, um, the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ. Look at verses 15 to 17 with me and we'll wrap this thing up. So he says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, maybe we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What is peace, you know? Um, In John 14, Jesus uh, is speaking to to his disciples and he says, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, Jesus, as a Hebrew man, um, wasn't just talking about the absence of conflict, right? That's how most of us would interpret peace, like oh, just no arguments, we got peace. He says, no, 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 peace is deeper than that. It's the, the Hebrew word shalom, right? Which carries the idea of not only peace, but wholeness, flourishing because of the presence of God himself, Just after that, in in, uh, John 14 and 15, Jesus talks about how he's going to go away and he's going to send the Spirit, the Comforter, right? The Holy Spirit who empowers us, who is the very presence of God with us. And so to have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts means that all that he is is enough for us. All of God's grace, all of God's power, all of God's wisdom, all of God's kindness, all of God's purity, all of God's love, all of God's peace available to you and me. And as we experience the peace of God, as we submit ourselves to the peace of God and let it rule our hearts, we are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to make peace and to be people who seek peace. And I'm convinced that a Christian community experiencing the peace of Christ together is the best antidote to an outraged world. And here's why. Because God is putting on display through us who, listen, if we did a survey, we won't, but if we did, uh, we would find that the people, even in this room, have very different opinions on a lot of different things. We don't all think the same. We don't all vote the same. We don't all have the same opinions on, on a lot of different things. But what binds us together is Jesus, not those things. And so God is putting on display through us a peace and a unity that everyone on this earth longs for and is only something that God can create. And since he is our peace, Ephesians chapter two, he is our peace who who broke down the dividing walls of hostility and made us both one in him. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We give him authority. We submit to his authority. His peace rules us, which means we refuse. We refuse to be limited by our imperfect opinions or perspectives or fears or any of that kind of stuff. We let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts which means we let the gospel take root and establish itself in our souls we immerse in this good news we soak in it we we let the the the, the truth of our sin in Christ's payment and our victory in Him and, and our identity transformation that comes through surrender to Jesus, we just let that truth wash over us, and that makes us a people who seek to honor Christ in everything we do by abstaining from everything non-noble. God the Father, through God the Son. By the power of God the Spirit, has both commanded us and empowers us to live with an otherworldly peace that, that He is teaching us. And do you know, I mean, there is nowhere else in this world that you go with people with such vast backgrounds and differences can come together in unity. It is a, it is a picture of the kingdom of God on this earth, and it is so attractive to the outside world. This is what everybody wants. But see, our world is trying to build the kingdom without the king. And they can't have it. They will never have it. But when they see us who are united by our king together, they're like, how does this happen? And we go, come on in. Let me, let me show you how it happens. So whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we do in the name of Jesus. That means with his attitude, with his character as representatives of Christ and his kingdom. I want you to remember that the next time that you are tempted to post or respond to someone else's post about anything, ask these two questions. Does this distract from or contradict the heart of Jesus and his gospel? If the answer is anything but no, don't post. Does this distract from or contradict the heart of Jesus and his gospel? Or secondly, is this expressing love and promoting the peace of Christ? Like, you remember how social media used to be like, you just went on there to find out when somebody's birthday was or to see what they ate for dinner last night? (laughs) How naive we were. What our culture needs far more than our opinions is the peace of Jesus Christ. And they will only get a glimpse of that as it comes through you and through me. So I wanna close with a quote from Andrew Murray. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Andrew Murray, but he was a um, South African pastor. He was sort of a contemporary to Charles Spurgeon. And I I came across his quote this week um, that I just love uh, about dealing with these kinds of things. Here's what he says. Let our temper be under the rule of the love of Jesus. He alone can make us gentle and patient. Let the vow that not an unkind word about others will ever be heard from our lips or read in our writing be laid trustingly at his feet. Let the gentleness that refuses to take offense, that is always ready to excuse, to think and hope the best, Mark our dealings with all. That's a commitment worth making for the glory of God and for the good of others. Okay, that's the end of my sermon. Um, Here's what I wanna do as we move towards our time of response. Um, We're gonna take communion. And for those of us who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, I, I want us to come laying before him um, all of that stuff within us, right? I'll have a couple questions to put up for you in just a second. Um, but I want us to lay before him the frustration, the anger, the disappointment, the, you know, the, the need to respond to people and correct them and be right about everything. We become laying that down before him because of this in Isaiah 53, which is a beautiful prophetic passage about Jesus. Um, He says this, the prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, he was canceled. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, was the outrage, was the wrath that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So, as we come to these tables this morning, I want us to just lay before him, right? All that stuff in us that, we, that, that wants to come out, you know, all that anger. And, no, it's by his chastisement, we have peace. Let us revel in that peace and let us be a people of peace in this outrageous world we live in. For his glory and for the good of our city. Uh, here's the two questions I want to put up on the screen for you. Real quick, and then we'll we'll move into our time of response. First one is this. How do I process the frustration, the anger, the disappointment, the fear that I feel over the state of our culture? What do you do with that? We all feel it to some degree or another. Some of us are very vocal about it. Others of us just shove it all down. Some of us pretend like it's not there. How do you deal with it? How do you process it? And then the second question is this. What might be different if the peace of Jesus actually ruled in my heart? That I didn't try to distract myself. I didn't try to prove everybody wrong. But I let the peace of Jesus rule and wash over me and actually control my heart and my responses. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take a moment of silence. We're just going to be still before the Lord and let him speak to our hearts Uh, And then when I get up, the tables will be open. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome uh, to come down these uh, rows to these four stations. We'll start with the back row and then work our way forward. Um, And when we come to communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that it was Jesus' body which was broken. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was broken to make us whole. Um, We dip into the juice or the wine, remembering that it was his blood that was spilled to cleanse us from all that sin and unrighteousness and folly and outrage and to bring us peace. So we come in repentance, we come in faith, we come with joy knowing that Jesus would do this for us to make us his own beloved family, the children of God because of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, uh, you can stay in your seat during this time. You don't need to respond. Uh, as you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes uh, here and here. They've moved. Um, uh, those are for response cards. If you uh, need a prayer, you can write it on a connect card. If you're new around here, you can drop it in the box if you want. If you're a regular and you want to worship the Lord through financial giving, if you don't already give online, that's what those boxes are for as well. Uh, and then we're going to have the band come back up and sing a few songs and respond to the Lord Through worship and song. Father, I thank you for these men and women. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and have you speak to us today. Lord, I pray that something that's been said this morning uh, resonates and um, convicts and challenges and encourages us um, to follow after you, to trust you, um, to experience the peace that only you can bring, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that you would allow us to be peacemakers in this world of outrage. Um, It doesn't mean we're not angered by sin and folly. Of course we are. But help us to learn how um, God-honoring ways to handle those things, to express uh, those frustrations. Um, And that the darker this world gets, you would make us a brighter and brighter light. So that those who... Are drinking from the empty cisterns of this world will see and could taste that you are good. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. We ask that you do business with us now as we respond in the name of Jesus, we pray and by the power of your spirit, amen. All right, just be still for a moment and when I get up, the tables will be open.